So Money, episode 1213, discussing the female ambition penalty with my guest, financial expert and author, Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. There's just a huge list of things that women need to do differently, whether it's just negotiating more or asking more for what they want or speaking up. And sometimes it's minutiae. Sometimes it's like change the tone of your voice. Sometimes it's stop using the word just. Sometimes it's stop apologizing. And we just come up with this list of directives of all the things women need to do differently. Like that is going to solve somehow for gender equity. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Crypto Week is in the rearview mirror. Happened all of last week. If you missed any of those episodes and you ever had a question about what is Bitcoin, what is an NFT, should I care about this, how do I invest... I encourage you to go back and listen. I dedicated an entire week to crypto, would hate for it to go unlistened to. It was a labor of, can I say love? Well, that's a hard, that's a strong word. I enjoyed it. I respected it. <laughs> I'm still not really a fan, but I get it now. And I feel like I can have a tangible, articulate conversation with my smarter friends about it. And also my kids, if they are curious about what is Ethereum, I might be able to break it down. Today, we are talking about women and money, my favorite topic, and the ambition penalty, as my guest describes it. Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez, she is a friend of the show. She's a friend in real life. She's a financial expert, author, host of the Money Confidential podcast, and she has brilliantly researched and articulated something that has been going on a little bit under the surface, and we really need to bring it to the forefront. And it is this paradox that Stephanie calls the ambition penalty, the social, professional, and financial costs women face when asking for more money. She says it is critical to understand this if we really want to tackle gender inequality when it comes to money, because nothing is going to change if we keep telling women to step up, if only they're going to be pushed down when they do. She writes about this for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read the entire article now at Bloomberg.com. But I wanted to bring her on the show to really talk about the genesis for this. She's been working on this thesis for many years now. So glad that it is finally coming to the masses. I think you'll like this one. Here's Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez, welcome back to So Money, my friend. Yay, it's been a minute. I'm excited to be back. But you were on my podcast recently. So yes, congratulations. Um, let's talk about your podcast for just a quick minute. Um, sure. It's the Real Simple Money Confidential podcast. You had an epic first season. How is it going? It's so great. What I've been really enjoying is that the format of the podcast starts with a listener interview. So we're really talking to somebody who's going through the money situation or the asking the question live on air. And we talk for like 15 minutes 
but but that's like the the finished framework. We actually talked for like 30 to 45 minutes. So it gives us an opportunity to like really flesh out what's behind the simplified question. So, you know, you start with somebody who's like, oh, how do I balance investing with paying off debt? But then when you talk for 45 minutes, you wind up getting that, you know, well, my debt is from my divorce and my husband wound up taking part of my house and I wasn't anticipating anticipating that. And now there's all of this emotion around dealing with the debt, even thinking about it. And I'm just like, man, it's so powerful to talk. It's not about. a money throw anymore. It's- it isn't. It really isn't. I mean, you've been on the show, Farnish. So yeah. we talked about you know what happens, obviously, like your book, when your partner makes more money than you. And you and I were just like talking about our feelings. Yes, I know. But it transitions as well to talking about why I wanted to have you back on the show, which yeah. is this ambition penalty that you have identified so brilliantly mm-hmm. and written about for Bloomberg Opinion. I know this is something that you have um, been touting for a while now. So it's really nice to see that it's gotten some, it's gone viral, actually. It's been, I, I see it everywhere. It's trending on Twitter. It reminds me of when I was writing my book, When She Makes More, that, you know, I experienced it in a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. In my writing, the ambition penalty. And I'll have you explain it in just a second. But like, it really resonated with me because on the one hand, I wanted to write a book called When She Makes More and write it for women because I felt like we were being penalized for doing all of the things that we thought we needed to do or should do to be empowered and successful, which is, you know, get an education, get a higher education, ask for the raise, make more money. And then we arrived in let's say our relationships making more than our partner to our credit, partly in some cases. And yet we felt like this was not a badge of honor. We were being penalized by society, by the traditions of marriage and culture and all of that. Then Stephanie, when I released the book, I got some feedback from some feminist editors who were like, why are you telling women what to do about this? problem because the subtitle was 10 rules for breadwinning women and Mm -hmm. and, you know it was really uh, meant to be a book for couples I would love for men to read this book too but it was the women who were coming to me with the questions so I wanted to write a book for them and so I feel like I'm caught in the middle of this ambition penalty as guilty uh, you know a bit and in terms of writing content for women. And I have been the, I have been that person that's like, you need to ask for more money. You need to be more ambitious. You need to do, you know, like telling the women what to do you, uh, but you bring up a really important point, which is that there is more to this than we just, than we are discussing, which is that it's not, it should not all fall on the shoulders of of women to solve this, this problem of maybe not being quote unquote financially successful. Uh, But tell us in your own words, what the ambition penalty is. Sure. Well, I think, first of all, I would just say that we all do this. I do it. It's it's not an individual thing that like, oh, you know, you're perpetrating the ambition penalty or you're blaming women. This is a bigger cultural structural thing. And what this is, the ambition penalty is, is basically this idea that what we have told women to do to close gaps in terms of uh, gender wealth, uh, gender leadership, you know, trying to see more representation in positions of power is 
this just huge list of things that women need to do differently, whether it's just negotiating more or asking more for what they want or speaking up. And sometimes it's minutia. Sometimes it's like change the tone of your voice. Sometimes it's stop using the word just. Sometimes it's stop apologizing. And we just come up with this list of directives of all the things women need to do differently. Like that is going to solve somehow for gender equity. And what happens is when women do these things, and in the piece, I use negotiation as an example, they face backlash for doing the very things we are instructing them to do because this isn't an individual problem. This is a larger cultural issue in which when women exert influence and are in spaces that are not typically seen as appropriately feminine, right? Or they exhibit behavior that isn't appropriately feminine. There is a backlash. And the ambition penalty is the the actual cost that women experience when that backlash happens. So in the piece, what I do is use the example of a woman negotiating her salary. And what happens is the job offer is rescinded. There is a clear cost to her of what happened when she negotiated. Now, this is not me saying stop negotiating your salary, not by any means. But what I'm challenging everyone to do, myself included, is when I do give advice on negotiation, I also have to do it with the recognition of the gender, racial, class, all the forms of bias that still plague the workplace. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we are just setting people up to keep asking and asking and asking, but we're not giving a nuance to our advice in a way that's going to help them have a different outcome. How did you arrive at this aha? Hmm. A process. (laughs) It's been a process. So I, for the last like three years behind the scenes of everything I do online. I've been like researching like crazy. And I think what, I don't know what really instigated it, but I think what I was seeing after the Clinton campaign and then in response to women in positions of power, especially in politics, just because politics has been so central for the last four or five years, is just the vitriol that these women who were really exerting influence in a meaningful way in ways we haven't seen before, whether it was Hillary Clinton or AOC or Kamala, like they were doing the things we always tell women to do to claim power. And like, goodness gracious, the discourse around what they were getting in response. And I was like, okay, I think this actually ties to a lot of other things. And I know in my own life, I was experiencing this more on the personal front, as you kind of experienced and wrote about in your book. Um, I just found you know, at a certain point in as I was getting into my mid 30s, it felt like my ambition because I'm a very ambitious person. It started to feel unacceptable in, in a lot of contexts. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, what's wrong with you that you, you don't want to you just, just be happy with what you, yeah, have. you have. Yeah, a lot. 
Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I have a lot of goals and I'm always pushing toward them. And I'm I very much identify with my career and my work and I really love it. And it's just there. It's just shocking the amount of distaste that that elicits. And also the fact that I'm talking about gaining financial power. And what was really interesting as I started to kind of like dig into what this feeling is, what's happening, you know, on a macro level in the news and in politics, and then what's happening in my own personal life. And I'm like, where is this intersection? What is this? Is what I'm seeing is like, oh, there's this vast body of research that just shows over and over again that when women you know, exert power and are specifically making gains in areas that have been previously considered like male domains Mm -hmm. exactly and when we think about money like it it is historically male dominated right um that's when those backlashes come up more than anything else and they come up in the form of not just um an issue of likability. I think sometimes this gets downplayed as, oh, you know, she's just not likable and she's just not a fit. And I and I was like, you know, it's not just that. It's not just that backlash effect. It, there are tangible things that are happening here that are costing us money. So in the example I gave in the story, I gave the rescinded job offer example. But mm-hmm. then I found data that said, you know, when women do negotiate, they're less likely to get the raises they ask for, which kind of contradicts this idea that just women aren't asking, right? Like, well, when they do ask, they're still less likely to get what they ask for. So I'm like, okay, there are real social, financial, professional, and personal consequences when we are doing the things that we've been telling women to do. It's so enraging, Stephanie, you know, and I encourage you to keep plowing through this research because I do think that this conversation is fresh and it merits books and a TED talk and really a lot more conversation. I want you to be at the forefront of this. You are so on it, but it's enraging. And um, there was a, a, a big book that came out a couple of years ago, kind of around the time of the uh, the Clinton campaign, as you talked about, as you described, and Me Too, mm-hmm. and the anger mm. and how when, 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 when women voice their anger or they they show their anger, which we're told not to do, Hmm. but how it can be really an instrument for change um, and how historically it has been an instrument for change. I wonder if there is a bit of advice that maybe in your column, it could have even been, you know, be loud, talk about your anger. Mm. If you got a job, if you got a job offer taken away from you because you suspect it's because you were ambitious and you asked for more, people should know about that. That should not be kept to yourself. Yeah. So it's so interesting because when I, this wound up actually being an episode of Money Confidential where I got this story, uh, speaking to the woman who negotiated the salary and had her job offer rescinded. And I could see how hesitant she was to talk about it. But one thing that I was, had a little bit of assurance about is while she was really hesitant to talk about it publicly, um, I think in part because like the fact is the world is really small and especially within a given sector, we all know each other, right? Like she wasn't in, in my industry, but I know pretty much all the people in my industry and like word gets around and sometimes that's really valuable and important, but sometimes it's really scary when you're going up the, uh, up against the people in power. And unfortunately, like most of the people in power to this day are white men. 
you know, and and then it's like, well, these, these systems were created for and by them. And it's still really scary if you've had a bad experience to to say anything because they still control all the levers. And it's really unfortunate. But what I was really feeling good about was the fact that she said she feels scared, but she's starting to talk about it, even on my podcast anonymously, but I think just sharing the story was important, but then also sharing with trusted colleagues slowly. And what was enraging even more was that she had three other girlfriends have the same thing happen to them. Because when I initially heard this story, I was like, this is an anomaly. Like this is... I can't even believe that this happened. Or it sounds like it happened to my mother in the 90s. Right. right. And she took my father's advice and went and asked for a raise at work. And instead, they laid her off. And she was traumatized Mm. and and would even tell me, like, don't push your luck, Farnoosh. You know, she would because she had experienced what you're basically describing is this is this. And I and I just thought that we had come further along. And yet here we are. Me too. I think I think the research and the stories, even since this article was published a week ago, the stories I've gotten continue to shock me. The fact that in 2021, the amount of people who have had not necessarily this experience, but whether it's a rescinded job offer or a layoff or somebody saying, you know, if you keep talking like that, I don't know what your future is at this company. Like this is still happening and it's happening in force. And in a lot of ways, I think this kind of penalty is even more insidious in some ways than outright sexism. You know, my mom's always like, well, it's so much better now. And I'm like, yes, in many ways it is. (laughs) No one's like, well, obviously sexual harassment happens all the time. That's why we have the Me Too movement. But I do feel like there is a little bit more of just an understanding that I'm not going to be so explicit with my sexism or my racism or my bias and discrimination in the workplace. But I think what this thing, this penalty is all about is like identifying the ways in which that stuff has kind of been couched into acceptable phrases. Like you're not really a fit here or you're not really committed to our mission. Like it doesn't feel like you care about our company and our values. And what that does, I think, is even more destructive because in the story that on Money Confidential, when I was speaking to this woman who had the rescinded job offer is she came away from that experience saying, you know, it wasn't that the worst they could say is no. It was much worse. They rescinded my job offer. They made me feel like I they were gaslighting me, that I yeah. don't have the skills and experience that I do, that I'm not qualified for this position, that I'm not committed to my work. And now she's kind of carrying this workplace trauma that she at 26 will be carrying with her. And she has to really do some work to repair, to move forward. One thing was interesting. She said, you know, I have all this imposter syndrome. I never had that before. We always as women are like, you know, I'm dealing with my imposter syndrome because like I'm a woman, like that's what women have. But actually it's a response to the experience of of all of these little things that have happened to us over the course of our education, in our homes, in our careers, in the workplace. Et cetera. Can I just also point out that a lot of this blaming has been from women yes. too. It's women against women. The men aren't saying like, oh, stop using the word just in your emails. I'm sorry, but <laughs> in my Instagram feed every day, there's some women empowerment 
you know, Instagrammer that I follow, whether it's, you know, Girl Boss or some of the others, which I like a lot of their content. But sometimes I'm, I kind of roll my eyes when they show me the, these videos, like these TikToks of how to rewrite your email. How about just be you? Yeah. And my reaction to this is, has always been, because I, I, I'm very familiar with all these studies, right? That mm-hmm. there's backlash. And do you think that part of the reason why women are looked upon maybe more negatively when they ask for a raise? And by the way, I think that same study said that men also like, it's it's not like that like a man asks for a raise and the boss is like, go you, right. you know, right. it's still like, ugh. but the women get a little bit more of that eye roll from their boss. And I sort of feel like it's because part of it is because not more women are doing it. It's still this outlier thing. Whereas imagine you work in an office where it's 50% men and 50% women, which we have some work to do there. But all of those women are asking for raises. Mm-hmm. I just feel like there's power in numbers and it's harder for that employer to reject those women, if it's just that one woman on, on in the workplace that's asking for a raise and then 10 guys are doing it, you know what I mean? I feel like she's going to get more scrutinized. Yeah. And and so I've always, my defense to these studies, which is like, well, because women will just throw their hands up in the air and they'll say, well, I'm just, I'm not going to even ask for it because I'd rather just keep my job than lose my job. I say, you got to get like 10 more women at work on your side to go in and ask for that raise because there's power in numbers. What do you think of that theory? I think it's interesting. And I, I agree that like the solution is not, I'm going to throw my hands up and do nothing. Right. I do think having an awareness that this is happening, the most important piece of it is that it kind of lets people let go of the self blame and then kind of like the internalizing that it's, it's, it's just me right? Like, it's just me that I'm not worthy, that I'm not this. And I think that is maybe the most important piece of this. It's not saying there's an ambition penalty. And so don't try to earn more. Don't try to reach leadership. Don't, don't, you know, try to do all these things that are actually valuable and are going to help you, you know, build wealth. You should absolutely do those things. But I think it's doing it, recognizing that, it's not an individual issue. It's broader than us. Yes, both men and women perpetrate and hold these biases. We all do. So given that, how do we better recognize these biases, manage them, and then also make sure that we're not blaming ourselves when they rear their heads? Mm-hmm. It's almost like we need to write an article for the men in the room, mm-hmm. as well as the employers, male and female employers in the room, this is not a woman's issue. Yeah. Yeah. This is everybody's issue. And there are many stakeholders and many influencers in this problem that we have. You have really good advice in your article, starting with mentors should give better advice. Tell us what you mean by better advice. Yeah. So what I mean by better advice is like, let's not just defer to advice that is like so oversimplified that it's basically stripped of any nuance or context. What my problem with a lot of the ask more dialogue is, is not the message itself. It's, it's the, it's the total oversimplification of, well, what does asking for more look like when I'm in an environment where, um, 
nobody in my company looks like me. When people do speak up, there is a lot of backlash. What are some of the ways that I've worked better in the past? One of the things I said is like, you know, framing things as communal wins as opposed to individual wins is a way to kind of circumvent some of these penalties because people hate to see women win winning for themselves. And I think just acknowledging that fact and being like, okay, so how do I, and we shouldn't have to do this, but, but this is the reality, right? So how do I frame what I'm working toward as something that is a net benefit to my boss, to the people around me, to my network? And I think just even these simple reframes of adding this nuance and adding the context of of recognizing that the bias exists and then how do I create a workaround in spite of that bias? Again, not that we should have to, but here we are. Um, I think that's a really important place to start. But I also think part of this is about like asking the questions around why things are happening rather than assuming why they're happening. And what I mean by that is like, okay, so if we're saying that women are deferring money decisions to their partners, well, why don't we ask, why wouldn't those women feel financially empowered in the first place? And this is what your book's about is like, well, when I am making more, there are all these social consequences that I'm experiencing mm -hmm. as a result of that. And, um, you know, the research shows that, you know, you talked about this on a, a TV show, I think that husband's stress levels rise when female partners hold more I mean, earn more than 40% of the income. Yes, you're right. Sometimes there's a partner who is resistant to allowing his wife or female partner to uh, inviting her into the financial uh, financials of the, of the relationship. There is that, or you just sense that maybe that oh, he wants to do that because this is how he feels like he's going to provide for us. That totally happens. I've just never been the woman who's like waiting for other people to figure out their shit. Yeah. I need to get my shit done. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to voice. And we've talked about this sort of behind the scenes, you and I, Stephanie, when we've, for example, been annoyed when clients pay us late. Yeah. And I'm like, next email, yeah. you CC your attorney yeah. and maybe you underline the fact that they are breaking the law, you know, and this isn't the first email. It is maybe the fifth email. And at that point it constitutes it. So it goes back to what I was saying about like leveraging your anger in a way that is very matter of fact and frankly, masculine. That's yes. how the men would have done it. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like what, what people think of as, um, I'm not here as to make friends. <laughs> Okay. Oh, I don't like need you to like me. I just need you to to pay me. And and if I have to like just you know ride your tail, I'm gonna do that. I think part of it too is like, well, what is the environment where? How do I identify the environment where it's safe for me to do that? And even even if it's even if it's risking safety a little bit, right? There is a tipping point. And I think like it's just that it's so hard to say these things in a binary and. What I'm saying is like, it's not one or the other. What I'm saying is like, this is so, so, so messy. And this is why. And so let's use 
this ambition penalty to like kind of figure out what this weird middle ground is, because like in this environment, yeah, I'm going to call my lawyer in on you and I am going to get my money. But in another environment, like if I'm putting my financial security for my entire family at risk and I don't have something lined up, right? Like I have to take that into consideration. And so it's just like acknowledging that this is so hard and, and, and I hate this, but it's true. Like there isn't an easy answer. I just think there is a little bit of solace and validation and being able to have the language for it and just recognize that this is why this is so hard. It's exclusive to women to a degree, but men also experience this, Mm -hmm. these imposter syndromes, all of that. I think a lot of this is I and and I'm still figuring out the language for it because I I think it's really tough. Again, anytime we speak in a binary, um, this is really about traditional gender roles and our understanding of traditional gender roles. Right. We expect men to behave in these traditionally masculine ways and women to behave in these traditionally woman ways. And the fact is like any time that your behavior goes against the expectation that somebody has based on how they perceive your gender identity, there's some kind of backlash. There's some kind of trigger. And especially we see it when women are behaving in masculine ways in traditionally masculine environments. That's like like the, the hot red button for guys and even for women. Like we all perpetrate this stuff. We all perpetrate patriarchy. It's a system and we're all in it. And so it's like, all right, what do we need to do? Like, let's. I joke, but sometimes I wonder, would I have had a easier career if I had chosen to be like a domesticity expert or like following Martha Stewart's footsteps? I don't know. I mean, I think about that a lot, but I'm also like so bad at that stuff. But, you know, (laughs) that's this that's the stuff that like this is why my Instagram following isn't as big as it is. I'm convinced. Yeah, I can't bake a nice pie or rearrange my house. And I, 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 I make nothing visually nice <laughs> to say. Uh, like our whole Instagram theme, no. feed is like defying gender expectations. It's a lot of text. It's a lot of text. <laughs> it's a lot of text. Um, another piece of your advice is that companies should support women's ambitions through building out networks yeah. where women's career and financial ambitions are celebrated rather than penalized. Can you share more about what that looks like for companies? Yeah. So there was some research that showed that companies that had affinity groups like women's groups um, and it gives women a a place to connect in a safer space, those companies... they have more women in leadership. And I think it's funny because we sometimes think of these as like trivial things or... I don't know, like, uh, why do the women need to be by themselves? But they're actually, they make meaningful differences in outcomes. And so I think we really do need to treat them as the powerful vehicles that they are. And I think if you're not in a company that has that kind of program, finding other sources of support and a network and community where you can identify with people who are going through similar struggles can give you language or reassurance that it's not just you, it's actually kind of the structural issue is going to be a huge huge deal. And then I would also say like, 
if there are gender differences in pay and advancement within a company, that requires some interrogation and like real interrogation, not like, oh, all these ladies are just dropping out of the workforce spontaneously. No, like it, there's actually a ton of research, even after women have children, that a year later, almost all of them continue to be in the workforce, um, just, you know, are not often at the same job or in the same position because that company wasn't being accommodating. But really, they're just making the assumption that those women have left the workforce when, in fact, that company was just so unwilling to change their policy to accommodate the needs of their workforce. So I think a lot of this is about companies letting go of these assumptions that have been ingrained into our culture that women aren't interested in leadership or certain jobs or being in the workforce after they become mothers and being like, oh, wait, let's actually see what's happening. If our entire leadership team is these white male MBAs, like maybe we're not as inclusive as we say we are. There are many of those kinds of companies. It's it's silly. It's not good business. When you right. don't have diversity within your company, it, you lose. Ultimately, it's not a long-term plan. Exactly. We need more of that more of those data points. But, you know, at the end of the day, and this maybe is like an anthropological question, but like, what do you, why are we so resistant? Like, why can't we move on? And and we're so attached to these gender assignments. Man, I really don't know. <laughs> I really, I am so, I'm so tired, right? Like when I right. speak to women and when I speak to like basically anyone who's been traditionally marginalized within the workplace or in the world, just a lot of people. It's just like this exhaustion. And I think the thing that blows my mind about gender equity specifically is that women are half the population and like the metrics really haven't moved much in like 10, 20 years. There's a lot of progress on measures of equity in the 70s. But when I look at the data now, it's like very depressing. It's very depressing. It's like... I, I was talking about this in the the Bloomberg live stream we did about the about the article, but not in the article itself, which was I think that what happened was I'm somebody who came of age in that like 90s, take your daughter to work day, girl power generation. And it was like almost as if everybody had decided that to make progress on gender equity, we have to start with girls. We are going to start with the kids. And like when those kids grew up, they're going to solve for it, right? By the time those women are in the workplace, they'll be empowered enough. They'll have all the skills, all of the strength, all the girl power. And here we are. I'm in my mid thirties. We are seeing like the data around women in the pandemic, millennial mothers, like this, these are the, the take your daughter yeah. to work day girls. We are bleeding out. And so like my other phenomenon that I'm trying to coin is called the empowerment cliff. So it's like girl power, girl power, girl power. As soon as you become reproductive age and in the workforce, like you're on your own. You're that's it. Yeah. yeah. So, well, that, that kind of gave me goosebumps when you talked about bring your daughter to work and all of that. And because it, again, it, it makes it all about the women and the girls and their what they need to do right. as opposed to what men need to do, what companies need to do, what government needs to do, what the society cultural paradigm shift needs to do. And it's a heavy lift, right? Yeah. And to assume that it's all, you know, just just believe it and do it and you'll be successful is just that narrative is so tired. Yeah. And doesn't work it for does everybody. Work. Yeah. It doesn't work for 
any like it's like oh you're marginalized in this way so here's what you need to do to change instead of being like oh wait we have set up a system to basically put you down so here's what we're going to change to to make sure that doesn't happen anymore and like this is true for so many things i am i am very aware that gender is just one small piece of this and that's just one thing that i've been studying here but obviously this intersects with class and race and sexuality and other gender identities like there's just so much to it and like to your point it is not on the people who are are suffering as a result of these systems to fix it like we're doing our best we are out there asking for more and negotiating and putting our hand up and trying to be more involved in the household finances and i think it's time we put a little bit more responsibility on the world around us to say hey we're doing the thing stop punishing us for it yes Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. Oh my gosh. We could be here forever talking about this. <laughs> so and I hope that you will continue this push. I if, if a literary agent is listening, um, <laughs> this is what I want the future of dialogue to be mm. when we talk about women and money and success. This is this is so good. You're that, awesome. Thank that you. That really means a lot to me. So thank you, Furnish. Always an inspiration to me. And I'm so glad we can have this conversation now, but I hopefully we'll continue yeah. to have it. And audience, sorry I use that four-letter word, but you know what? I just <laughs> sometimes I'm gonna this is gonna have to be an explicit episode now. I don't know how yeah. I feel about that, but in life, a little sometimes some four-letter words must fall. Thank you, thank you, and everybody. I hope your day is so money. Thanks so much to Stephanie for joining us. You can check out her article at Bloomberg.com. And her podcast, again, is called Money Confidential. If you like the show, I would implore you to leave a review. Let me know what you think. And that way you might qualify for a free 15-minute money session with me. Every week I pick a listener who leaves a review on iTunes to have a free 15-minute call where we can talk about whatever you like. On Wednesday, we're going to dedicate the show to financial rights within the LGBTQ plus community. My guest is Adam Ariema, editor-in-chief of Next Advisor. He just wrapped an interview with Susie Orman where she talks about her experience being a lesbian in the finance industry, specifically in the early 80s at Merrill Lynch. He'll also provide a brief history of LGBTQ plus financial rights and some of his favorite LGBTQ plus experts to follow. If you want to get financially savvy, stay tuned. Thanks for joining everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.